now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. How do I get into a bar fight with Joe Biden now? Not like with him, but like against him? No. Like oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. On a, on a team. They have teams in bar fights, yeah, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> you want to side with a guy with a chain. Yeah, with a chain. He's talking about straight razors and bathing caps. He sounds like a, like a contender. <laughs> Our listeners are going, what is going on? We'll get to it. We'll explain it all. <laughs> oh, boy. If that was two years ago, we're in serious, serious trouble. Oh, God. Anyways, hi guys, it's Barstool Politics. I am your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi guys. Hey Nick. Hey Nick. Hey, uh, before we get started, all the usual fun stuff. Uh, if you guys like the podcast, have questions, uh, comments, beer suggestions, anything like that, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, uh, Facebook at Barstool Politics. The podcast you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, uh, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, most major podcasting platforms. Um, please review us, share us, like us through there. We always appreciate the support. Um, yeah. And then uh, beers uh, that we try, you can find on Untapped, which you can download on iOS or Android. Uh, just look for uh, Barstool Politics on there and you will find all of our stuff. We were talking beforehand that maybe we need an Instagram account, Nick. Maybe we why, should, why are we doing that? We should. We should. People so want to see the pictures. People want to see the pictures. We used to do it. So and you, then Bill got mad because <laughs> the breweries weren't responding so, to us. So if you think we should have pictures up there, tweet at us and we'll, you know, we'll do the gram thing. <laughs> if you think we should have an Instagram account, go to our Instagram account and like it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I'm very excited because we get to talk about um, foreign policy for our big our big subjects, yes. which we so rarely do. And it makes me very happy, even if it means we're going to war with Iran. But that's neither here nor there. We've been talking about that for a long time. So. Yeah, All apparently right. it's 27.0, version <laughs> yes. 27.0. All right. So in the early hours of Saturday morning, a dramatic attack that included cruise missiles and apparently up to two dozen drones. The number of drones just keeps going up and up and up was carried out on, out on Saudi Arabia's oil facilities. The attack was the largest attack on Saudi Arabia since the war in Yemen began more than four years ago and caused oil prices to jump over 10% on Monday. President Trump quickly pointed the finger at Iran, even though Houthi rebels in Yemen claimed responsibility. As a quick reminder to our listeners, there's a civil war currently playing out in Yemen in which Saudi Arabia is supporting the Yemen government and Iran is supporting the Houthi rebels. Saudi and U.S. investigators have determined with a very high probability that the attacks came from an Iranian base close to the border with Iraq. 
Trump tweeted out that the U.S. was, quote, locked and loaded, depending on verification, locked and loaded. Now, I'm sure our listeners will remember that it was just this past June when Trump tweeted that we were cocked and loaded to respond to Iran shooting down an American surveillance drone. evolving. I know. Trump claimed he called off that previous attack with 10 minutes to spare when a general told him that 150 people would probably die. Phil, it appears we are once again knocking on the door of war with Iran, yet Trump seems torn by torn between two impulses. He loves talking tough, but he also appears to be dead set against getting the U.S. into another war in the Middle East. What's what, thoughts on all of this? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I we've, we've talked a little bit over the past few weeks that, that Trump seems reluctant, right, to reluctant to to take that that step, even though he likes the the fiery rhetoric rhetoric. I, you know, I, I can't I, I think about the last two weeks, the last two weeks in U.S. Iranian relations have been a, a roller coaster ride. So we, you know, we, back to the, the firing of John Bolton, you know, John Bolton's pushing for war with Iran. He's fired. The price of oil dropped immediately. Um, Trump and the Trump administration started reaching out to Iran. We didn't even get to that discussion point because it happened so quick and went away so quick. But we, he was basically uh, talking on Twitter about more or less going back to the Obama policy of, of uh, extending um, money, economic incentives for Iran to come back to the negotiating table. That lasted like two days before this happened, and again, the price of oil goes up, and we're you know talking about uh, military attacks. Um, I you know I, I still think that Trump's impulse is, like you said, to uh, to talk a big game, um, but that he's he, he's unlikely to follow through. Right? There's some other thing that's going to come along that's going to distract him, but I. I I think that um, there's a couple of factors that make me nervous. One of which is the the instability in the foreign policy leadership, right? So the fact that there's not a national security advisor that we still we still have a, a interim Secretary of Defense, right? I mean, so no, he's a lot- he's, uh, he's he's regular now. Oh, he's regular. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so the fact that there's there's some level of instability amongst the the people who are advising the president, and the fact that again, so much has happened in the last two weeks, you have all of this back and forth. You know, one of the things that, that people talk about in foreign policy or international relations um, is the danger of misperceptions or miscalculations or misunderstandings and how that can potentially lead to uh, a, a war. And so I, that's totally separate from whether the U.S. should respond in this in this moment. We can talk about that, about what, yeah. you know, what role the U.S. should play. But um, yeah, it, it's 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 uh, the, the level of instability makes me a, a little nervous. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I really think that of those two impulses, Trump talking tough versus Trump not wanting to get involved in a Middle East conflict, I think the not wanting to get involved in a conflict is the more prominent Trumpian element, right? I think he wants to do everything he can to avoid that. I wonder whether this eventually will get out of his control. Like you said, Phil, you don't always know perceptions, misperceptions. Saudi Arabia is involved here, Saudi Arabia versus Iran. Today, Mike Pompeo came out and said this was an act of war. That's much more that's raising the level of rhetoric to say that if some if a state engages in an act of war against another state, there has to be some sort of response. And I'm not sure sanctions, raising sanctions is enough there. Uh, Here's the here's the important point to put in there. And and again, this doesn't settle the issue, but it's it's a point that I don't feel like is being discussed in the media or when I hear people talk about this. If this isn't if Iran did this and it seems like there's increasing evidence that that they 
did, um, even if it was the the Houthi rebels, right? That's they're they're a proxy of Iran. But uh, so if if Iran did this, yeah, it would be an act of war, right? If Canada flew a drone over the United States and attacked a uh, oil refinery, that would be an act of war. But it's an act of war against Saudi Arabia. It's not an act of war against the United States. We are mm-hmm. not a, we are not treaty allies with Saudi Arabia. They're a, they're a longstanding ally. We have economic interests, but it's not like they're a NATO member where we are required to act. And the way in which American leaders and even the media, to some extent, is talking about this as if it was an attack on the United States or that an attack on Saudi Arabia is the equivalent of a, you know, a NATO, you know, a Russian attack on a NATO ally. Um, that's a little disturbing to me. I mean, there, there is a conversation to be had about whether or not U.S. interests are at play here and whether the U.S. should respond. But just the assumption that an attack on Saudi Arabia is an attack on us is uh, is concerning. It's disconcerting for me. Even Trump himself in his initial tweet, his locked and loaded tweet was saying, well, we're going to wait to hear from Saudi Arabia, which upset a lot of people to say, well, you know, we should make these decisions separate from what Saudi Arabia feels. I mean, we're all in agreement that this is a conspiracy on the part of the Saudis to just boost oil prices again, oh, right? Of course. Okay. I just yeah. wanted to make sure. As long as we set that baseline, <laughs> we'll we'll move forward with the discussion. Um, yeah, I, I mean, Phil, you were you hit the nail on the head. We we do not have a a legal or diplomatic obligation to come to the aid of Saudi Arabia, um, and to think that we do, which is seems to be the 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 picture that's being painted not only by the administration but many members of of the media, members of Congress, um, you know, it just it it boggles my mind that that we're so intertwined with a country that realistically the majority of American citizens do not like uh, and have been pains in our asses for mm-hmm. you know the better part of sixty seventy years at this point. Um, it's there. I I don't know what the solution is at this point because I feel like we're the fact that there isn't a, a treaty in place where we are obligated to come to their aid, but we're so hell bent to do something on top of the fact that there isn't much more that we can sanction in Iran means that there has to be some sort of response. The UN doesn't seem to have any interest in dealing with this anymore. The Houthis uh, clearly are not going to stop. And we know that they're at the beck and call of what the Iranians want to do. Um, I, like, I don't know what what alternative that we have besides military action at this point. And it would have to come from the president because it seems like a lot of the policy that's coming out of um, the federal government, and the military, especially uh, right now, is not coming from the president. <laughs> right. And you think about what so what's happening in Yemen right now is you've got this proxy war playing out and it's it's localized. And now what Iran has done is trying to, to sh- shift it from a localized conflict to a regional conflict. If Saudi Arabia responds against Iran, then you really have a, a much more dangerous regional dynamic. But if the U.S. gets engaged, then it becomes a potentially global conflict, right? There's different levels here. And I think that has to factor into the U.S. response. Does the United States want to engage Iran or do we want Saudi Arabia to respond, right? It, it affects how all of that plays out. The other thing I found myself thinking about today was how would I feel about this if it wasn't Donald Trump as president? You know, if it was, it was Obama or Bush or somebody else. I think I would be more supportive of military action than I am with Trump for many of the reasons that I think, Phil, you cited. I'm worried that they're going to bungle this or they're not going to understand the nuances of this. And and so I try to understand the situation outside of Trump, and it's really hard to do that. Hmm. Uh, he, 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 I don't know, he complicates it. So for me, it's interesting because I, you know, there's, there are, um, 
there's there's lots of ties between Trump and Saudi Arabia that go back, you know, from the beginning, right? One of his first foreign visits, they've they've been, I think, really good at playing the Trump game. They've stayed at his properties. They've put money into his. So there's there's all of this element of interconnected or uh, intertwined um, self interest, right? So how much if if Trump is responding, how much of it is responding on behalf of the U.S.? How much of it is responding on behalf of Trump's? self-interest. I, I don't know the answer to that, but that that is to some extent why the intertwining or the mixing of personal financial incentives with the presidency is is problematic. Um but I you know having said that, I, Trump is I think l- because he's different because he's I, to be frank, to be blunt, less informed about sort of U.S. foreign policy history and whatnot. Um, I think he's also less likely to kind of jump to the conclusions that would have happened in the past. And, the, and I, I sort of wonder if mm-hmm. people who within the establishment in the past would sort of unquestioningly have gone in line with, uh, you know, if John Bolton were still in place, who he's like this sort of representative of the Bush administration, you know, th- this would be like, immediately the response is to act on behalf of Saudi Arabia against Iran. Um, and I, I don't think that's just a Republican thing. I've, you know, you see that with Democrats as well. So I, I don't know. There's, there, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I, I don't, um, I'm not, I, I don't feel great about Donald Trump being char- in charge of this situation, but I don't know that he's more likely to, uh, to screw, I mean, it, it depends on what you mean by screw it up. But I think yeah. previous people might have unquestioningly responded in a sort of a knee jerk mm-hmm. sort of way that that Donald Trump might not because of of you know, his, uh, uh, lacking that sort of foreign policy history or whatever. Yeah, does that make sense? I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, we just talked about it two minutes ago. You know, the cursory evidence suggests that he was not leaning towards military intervention in Iran or, or the Middle East in general. So I I I, I wonder. Um, to me, a lot of the actions that he's taken clearly have been, I don't want to say detrimental, but different. I'll say divorce to use that word to describe it different, (laughs) um, from a foreign policy perspective, as much as, you know, we talk about fire and fury and, you know, cocked and loaded and all that stuff. I think a lot of it is bluster and it's, it's part of the way that he thinks he can get a deal made. I think his, his. Uh, modus operandi with this is he wants to make a deal and not have to intervene militarily because it doesn't benefit him any. He, if this, you know, if we're talking about a, a, a relationship with the Saudis that also, you know, we can sort of deal with Iran in a way that's, um, you know, less focused on military, military intervention, that's a win for him before it's a win for anybody else. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not sure he'll, he'll bungle this. Um, honestly, I, I'm more optimistic about it in the sense that he really wants to stay away from that type of, uh, heavy handed action. Yeah. And I think that's, that is reassuring. I, you know, part of, I'm teaching a course right now on world war one. And so we're spending a lot of time talking about Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany. And there's been a lot of historical comparisons between Trump and Wilhelm, this sort of impulsive nature. And, and I, I think that you're, you're both right that Trump's instincts are not to get into war, but what ultimately happened in Germany is that his military men convinced him that this was a military necessity and he quickly flipped to the other way. And I, I think Trump may put up a good fight for a while. While, but if pushed, I think he's not. He he doesn't have the backbone to stand up, and and I, you know I'm yeah. So I, that's what I worry about whether sure. whether 
when push comes to shove, will he be consumed by momentum and not be able to to be a strong voice? Go ahead, Phil. I, so I, I was going to sort of change the uh, the approach a little bit. So if you had something to say about what Bill is saying, you should go ahead and say it. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah I, I mean, uh, in terms of, of military intervention, um, we can talk all day about, you know, the policy he wants to put in place and what his actual feelings on this are and the motivations of the military. In the end, because there's no obligation for us mm-hmm. to uh, come to the aid of Saudi Arabia, this still has to get congressional approval for any sort of military intervention. No. Yes. yes. No, we're, we've, we're stopped. We're not. We don't do that <laughs> we anymore. We don't do that anymore. No. We don't. You just you, you go to the authorization for uh, military force from 9-11. It's, everything, and it just it's goes, all and good. goes and goes Until, and goes. And that's a sad thing. Until Congress reasserts itself. Anything a president wants to do, especially in the Middle East, is, yeah, he's fighting terrorism. Uh, I, but I don't it's it's but it's not 9-11 and nobody's going to want to want to hold that particular radioactive political football. But I Congress think. isn't going to push back. They didn't push oh, back yeah. on Libya. They didn't push back. Right. On anything. Uh, the, uh, yeah. And once you send <laughs> yeah, once you send American troops in to fight against Iran, like hey, Congress isn't going to pull the money or be disloyal to the troops in that sense. I, so we, uh, what I want to do is, is step back a little bit because we've been talking about Trump, but I, I there's a larger thing here, which is that uh, I, I just don't know why we're why we. I understand why we care. Um, so I, there, there's a long history between Iran and Saudi Arabia, right? That gets back to this divide in the Muslim world between the you know the the Sunni and the and the Shia Muslim. Uh, um, so Iran is is Shia predominantly. Uh, Saudi Arabia is predominantly Sunni. They sort of represent the the kind of centers or the you know the the centers of power of those two two divisions with is, within Islam. They haven't liked each other since the Iranian Revolution. The Iranian Revolution was about overthrowing monarchies. The Saudi regime is about upholding monarchies. They don't they don't like each other. They're competing for essentially a position of power and control and preeminence in the Muslim world and in the Middle East specifically. And it is weird to me that we feel the need to get involved in this. This seems like a situation in which n- neither of these countries are, are you know, it's not like Great Britain is fighting North Korea here, right? I mean, we have, we tend to focus on the flaws in, with Iran and, and there are flaws, right? There are reasons to be concerned about the Iranian regime. There's a hell of a lot of reasons to be concerned about the Saudi regime as well, including its ties to to, uh, you know, Wahhabism, to to Al Qaeda, not to mention the fact that they dismembered an American journalist not very long mm-hmm. ago. I mean, I they're, this is, they're, <laughs> right. they are not they're not a prime example of, of you know, human rights. Uh, you know, they're just it's just problematic. It seems like yeah. two really not great regimes fighting with each other about who can be more powerful. And it seems like the best thing is just to stay out of it. I mean, this, I don't, but I, I realize that there's oil and there's, there's, right. you know, there's yes. military interests, there's economic interests at play, but, um, I'm a little baffled by the, the, the extent to which our default reaction is that, yes, we should be involved in this and that, yes, we should be on the side of Saudi Arabia. Convince me that it's important for us to actually, you know, to why shouldn't we just step back and let them figure it out? Well, other than oil, right? And I think that's we, we can't get around it. that, right? The, the stability <laughs> of those oil markers go, going back to the, you know, going back to the 70s. Ever since then, we've embraced Saudi Arabia. But but you to your point about why we have to always side with Saudi Arabia is a really, really good question. 
the Obama administration dabbled with trying to balance that a little bit. And, you know, it, they weren't very successful at that. But to say the United States will pursue a relationship with Iran and Saudi Arabia, and, you know, we would prefer stability in that area. And we're not going to, you know, necessarily favor one over the other. I thought that was a, a really fruitful potential. There was a lot of potential there. And then we gave, you know, when Trump came in, it was like, okay, we're going to go back to Saudi Arabia. But there's good reason to put pressure on Saudi Arabia. There's good reason to make both countries not sure where the United States is going to ally itself. Saudi Arabia now knows that they can be hawkish, knows that they can carry out an attack on Iran because the United States is going to be, you know, behind them. That That is not in our interest to see those two carry out some sort of war in the region for economic reasons, reasons for Israel, you know, Israel stability. Um, yeah, I, I, I think we should reassess all of that. I mean, they know they can be hawkish yeah. about it. They've been fighting a, a war in Yemen for five years mm-hmm. with our military technology right. and our backing, you know, on top of the, you know, yeah. the half a dozen wars prior to that in the past few decades. It's, it's, in my opinion, it doesn't get any more complex than the logistics of oil production. Yeah. That's it, right? There's that's, nothing that's else. It. They have the ability to, process and and ship the majority of the world's oil supply at this point so the when a single attack like this temporarily takes down half of their oil production and realistically it doesn't you know it didn't take much to to bring that um back up to speed but oil prices immediately jump pretty significantly 10% 10% was the highest jump maybe in record. I don't know if it's not recorded, but it was a huge, I think it was, yeah. In the, like the past decade yeah, or something yeah. like that. Um, that's a big, that's a huge deal. If there was a, a major military conflict, I, I mean, purely for keeping the global system yeah. working and the fact that they have the ability to keep that global system working, you have to side with them. Yeah. You don't have many other, you don't, have, you really don't have a lot of choice in that situation. Well, and to, to kind of keep building on Phil's point, I think some of this isn't just, you know, a pro isn't just a war between Iran and Saudi Arabia, but Iran is trying to provoke the United States, right? So the sanctions regime that the United States has put on Iran since pulling out of the Iran nuclear accord is squeezing them economically, sque- squeezing them politically. And we're likely to see more and more of these type of attacks. We're likely to see them uh, flaunt the violations of the Iran nuclear accord. Iran's behavior is only going to get worse, right? We've emboldened uh, their more extremist elements. So this is this is not going to be a one-off thing. I think it's likely we're going to see more and more of Iranian trouble, either with Saudi Arabia or in the region or the Straits of Hormuz. Like this is just, I think, the beginning of Iran troublemaking. And some of it comes back to our decision to to withdraw from the accord. But again, their immediate response is you need to concede, lift the sanctions yeah. uh, or come back to the nuclear deal or this is just going to continue. Yeah. That can't that can't be your only response, because realistically, the U.N. has major economic interests with Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, which whatever you think of them is a significantly yeah. more stable regime. And your other alternative is is a, uh, a quote unquote regime that is pretty much holding you hostage. I, that's that's not a winning formula in this situation. You have to concede something. There's it's a land of lousy options right now. Um, yeah, mm. Phil. So basically, like because we don't want to pay an extra 30 cents per gallon of gas, we're going to go to war <laughs> with Iran. Yes. Yeah, right. That's correct. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's it. <laughs> that's insane. That's well, insane. <laughs> 
there's no other real there's no human rights interest in the region i mean the united states the, the relationship no. with saudi arabia is purely oil based this is that's that's the only variable that's driving that relationship so if you wanted to make this economic argument, though, I mean, I, Trump has like touted that we've become an oil exporter, right? Like through the expansion of the American, I, I, if you wanted to make like a really strict kind of Marxist or even realist argument, the idea of rising gas prices isn't necessary or rising oil prices isn't necessarily bad for the United States. So I, I, part of me just thinks that this is like how we've thought about things for so long that again, we've just we've just accepted the idea that, oh, holy shit, oil prices are going to go up. We have to do something as opposed to like stepping back and thinking about uh, how much of a variation in oil price are we willing to accept before we spend billions of dollars and however many thousands of American lives to go ensure because war, if we end up going to war, it, that's not going to bring down the price of oil right in the long term, it might. But the short term effect is that it's going to drive the price of oil up even more. Mm-hmm. It's, it just feels like people, I, I don't, I mean, I'm not saying that that's not the answer, but it feels like we're not actually, it, it feels like so much regarding the Middle East and Saudi Arabia and Iran is just kind of a knee jerk. This is the way we've always thought about it. And so we got to do that. And and I, I'm, I don't know, I wish there was a little bit more kind of analysis and really kind of thoughtful thinking about what, what do we, what's the price? What's the cost? Let's weigh those costs. Maybe it's worth it. Maybe it's not, but mm-hmm. just a, a, a jump in the price of oil seems like that, that's that, that maybe that's enough, but let's actually talk about it and figure out how much that matters in terms of uh, us foreign policy. Is that enough to justify supporting a regime that is one of the world's worst offenders of human rights, right? They, I mean, mm-hmm. we've talked on here about how terrible, like how it's really unfortunate that the U.S. is having to make these deals with the Taliban because the Taliban is, you know, terrible towards women. Saudi Arabia, they, they, they're not a progressive feminist nation, right? So women we, can we, dr- sort of drive now, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> sort but of. it's the it's the <laughs> double standard, right? Like, yeah. we, how do we even like? How, how is it even palatable to sign uh, a treaty or, you know, a ceasefire with the Taliban? Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia, we will, we're there in a heartbeat if they're attacked. It, it's a, there's a weird duality to it that, um, that it feels like it goes, a, a, it's not that it's unexamined because people talk about it, but it doesn't, it feels like it's not examined enough. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it's, it's a valid point. Realistically, we, technically outstrip Saudi Arabia in terms of oil production at this point. Um, but nobody talks about that and it doesn't seem to have any effect on our system. Realistically, gas should be like what a dollar 20 a gallon or something with the amount of oil that we produce, but that's not how the system works because we've been so tied in with Saudi Aramco and you know, the, the, the regimes in the middle East that we still, I mean, it's been maybe a, a decade since we've had that, level of of production capabilities i still think that there's a a potential to move away from that but then there's you know the intertwined globalized economic interest of the rest <laughs> it's good beer huh yeah. um I, I it it's regardless of what happens to us in terms of our our individual uh oil producing capabilities I, I don't think that that still outstrips what the rest of the world is going to be going to be influenced by um, on top of the fact that it's still tied in with the globalized system in terms of uh, just levels of oil production. And that's going to affect mm-hmm. our stock market and oil prices in general, which uh, until we get to a point where we can completely move away from 
Middle East oil, like this isn't going to change. I, and I, I just keep adding points to this. On top of that, um, there is some strategic benefit to us taking their oil as opposed to Russia or, you know, other mm-hmm. powers who we would not want to have as, you know, th- that, that, um, Sure. Uh, capacity, I guess. But what's frustrating to me is couldn't we just solve no. all, not solve, solve a big chunk of this by getting back into the Iran nuclear accord, right? The reason this is happening is Iran is pissed off that they've got these sanctions on us and they're trying to cause problems by attacking Saudi Arabia, by attacking Yemen, by, you know, grabbing British oil tankers. They're, they're doing this intentionally to make our life difficult. So why don't we reassess, you know, I think, Phil, you're right. We should reassess the value of, of war or over oil, but we should also reassess our, our the reason that we pulled out of this accord in the first place. I, I don't know. So, I, I think a so lot I, of the impulse for Iran's behavior could be addressed if we simply, you know, re you know reengage that nuclear accord. So on that on that point, and, and you made a, a point along these lines a few minutes ago. Uh, we were it, it seemed like for a two day period there, maybe shifting in that direction. There were reports that Trump was thinking of re-engaging. There was, in fact, all sorts of, there's been lots of debate in the media about whether or not Trump said he was willing to meet with Iran without conditions. You know, there were Which reports he did. that, that again, he, he did. did multiple times. <laughs> and um, he claims he it. didn't, but yes, he did multiple times. Uh, there are also, again, you know, reports that we were going to offer financial incentives, which were actually greater than what was uh, what was done under the Obama administration. So the part that, that I, maybe you, I, I don't know if you have thoughts on this, um, if you're Iran, I, I can understand as the U.S. pulls away from that why you you know act out in some ways. But with the departure of John Bolton, and it seems like this possible shift in U.S. policy, the timing of doing this seems odd to me. What what does Iran get out of striking Saudi Arabia in this moment, where in fact it looks like maybe there's an opening with the U.S. to sort of re. Uh, engage and and move forward in a way that might be beneficial economically to Iran. Why would they attack Saudi Arabia in that moment? Did I think we not agree on the Saudi Arabia conspiracy. <laughs> I thought we agreed on this. <laughs> I think we have to shift the focus and not think about what is in Iran's interest, but think about who's making the decision within Iran. And and we've shifted from Rouhani, the president who is a moderate. When the United States withdrew from that accord, it empowered and emboldened the more extremist elements within Iran who who do see things very differently. So that that's that's the my my assessment of this is that. It's the decision makers are no longer the moderates, it's the extremists. And so even if there is an opportunity for negotiation, the extremists don't want that. They want to cause trouble. They've been looking to cause trouble for a long time. So that's why if I'm the United States, I try to take that away from them and and empower the more moderate voices in Iran, because those are the individuals you can negotiate with. So you're saying that we should make concessions to a regime that doesn't have full control over the proxies that it's put in place across the Middle East at this point and doesn't have full control over military actions taking place in their own country to attack another sovereign state? I would say that all countries, there, the idea that, that states are rational actors is, is, is overly simplistic, right? There are multiple pressures driving a state in different directions. Sure. And so Iran, what, I think right now you've seen the Ayatollah and the, the um, uh, what is it, the, the, I can't think of the, the Iraqi or the Iranian forces, whatever. The more extremist elements within Iran are now pushing 
the foreign policy. So, you know, if you're the United States, you want to try to find a way to engage those more moderate forces. Sure. Force, but forces. the response from the Iranian regime wasn't, yeah, this wasn't us and we're going to do something about this. Yeah. It's fuck you, America. Right, right, right. Yeah. And we don't, we're not going to have a part in this yeah. unless you come back to the nuclear deal. Right. So that's not a response from a country that wants to come to some sort of peaceful conclusion to this. It's not a response from elements within the regime who want that. I think there are elements within the Iranian regime who would like to have. Then the regime is in tatters at this point. So why would you negotiate with them over Saudi Arabia? Okay, who would, realistically is a rational act. But I would say it's the same thing with you. Go ahead, Phil. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, the, the, as you talk, the thing I think of was when the Soviet Union was unraveling, right? And there were different mm-hmm. uh, factions within the Soviet government about mm-hmm. you know, sort of pro-Western or, or at least not pro-Western, but more pro sort of reform and democratic versus the hardliners. And the U.S. was very intentional about seeking out the reformers and acknowledging them and sort of trying to not pay attention to the hardliners or to ignore them or to marginalize them. And, and, you know, that's that's an example of of thinking strategically about trying to lift up the forces within uh, a a country. And and it seems like that's that's there are parallels, right, that you want to. Again, try to reach out to those moderate ones. Um, I, I don't, it seems more difficult in the Iranian situation than in the Russian situation. One mm. quick side note. So we were talking about that the United States hasn't had a national security advisor for a long time. Trump today announced Robert O'Brien as his next NSA. Uh, he is a John Bolton protege. Uh, so he will bring some of those same views on Iran to the National Security Council. He is more subtle. Uh, he's more strategic, so uh, I think he will be less. He will clash less with Trump in terms of of style, but in terms of substance, I think he is very, very much in line with John Bolton. So I, I don't know what that means for Trump and for U.S. foreign policy, but it's, it's I think it's a similar ideology in that in that individual position. How does, how does that happen? Uh, meaning uh, that doesn't if it, the falling out between Bolton and Trump, how is it that he in, someone obviously is encouraging Trump to choose him? Right. This is, again, the sort of fac- different factions within the government playing out. But it seems uh, unusual to get rid of Bolton and replace him with someone who's largely in line with Bolton. So my understanding is that he's the State Department's uh, lead uh, hostage, hostage negotiator, yeah. correct? Yeah. Who yes. helped get ASAP Rocky yes, out that's of probably Sweden. True. Yes, that's probably true. Who why. Trump also said he made, I think, yeah, quote, made a, a, a good impression yeah. on me yeah. or something. And that's really all it takes. That's true. <laughs> this is, good this point. Is, this is maddening. No, you're absolutely right. And, and Trump apparently behind the scenes said he looks the part. He That's what it was. He oh, looks the part. For, come on. You, it's not, that shouldn't matter. But also, so in terms of like the behind the scenes politics, uh, O'Brien has uh, thanked the president and said what good work the president is doing. Trump one time tweeted out what Robert O'Brien said. So, I mean, he's, you know, he's sucking up to the president. And that's that's, you know, he looks the part. He's deferential to the president. He got ASAP Rocky out. I mean, what more do you need, Phil? That's <laughs> <good>. <laughs> Sorry, it was a stupid question. <laughs> All right. Should we transition to talk about beers? Yes. All right, Phil. Tell so us about I, that beer. <laughs> so I'm drinking a beer from uh, uh, Foreign Objects is the is the brewery, and they are out of Pennsylvania. And this beer is called Can't Go Wrong Without You. Um, I honestly, when I picked this up, I thought that the beer was called Foreign Objects, and now I'm realizing that's the brewery. So uh, 
the spear has grown on me a little. But before we came on the air, I opened this up and I took the first couple of sips. And um, this beer gets it gets good reviews online on you know Beer Advocate on uh, Untapped. It gets people like it. Um, I don't. <laughs> it's not awful, but it is. Um, <laughs> I think the way I described it before we came on the air, and it was a little harsh, was that it was as if somebody took a glass of orange juice and soaked a gym sock in it. Oh, no. <laughs> so what I mean is I think, that, I think the beer term that goes with that is dank, right? So dank comes up all the time in the descriptions. This beer is is dank. It, you know, it's kind of like – it's got like a buttery – like it's it's – there, you know, I can see why people like it, but I, I don't. It is, it's not, it is not so, my cup of tea. I would not be having another. So it has a dank <laughs> mouthfeel to it. A dank <laughs> mouthfeel, yes. <laughs> All right, Nick, we've had little samples of three beers. Yes. Uh, tell us about oh, them. Oh you're, you're the good reader of the names. <laughs> good reader. Uh, first one we had was uh, Try Not to Suck, which is a German-style lager. Uh, Joe Madden's yes. uh, Try Not to Suck. The, I, I uh, love Joe Madden. He, he's, he's, yeah. he's pretty good. Um, yeah, it was... Um, it's it, it had a... It was a very uh, bright and crisp yeah. lager, um, uh, but it had a lot of bite to it, yeah. I guess. Um, really kind of sharp um, hoppy notes, yeah. uh, which kind of took me by surprise. Um it didn't really do anything. It had got a little. A they little need to try harder to not to suck. Yeah, a that little, one that was a little sucky. It, it was, was close sucky. to yeah, sucky. Yeah, we won't go so far. But nah. so that beer was no good. But the next two, Nick. Yes. So the second one we had was uh, uh, Stephen Street uh, Double Dry Hopped uh, American Pale Ale from Penrose, mm. um, which we've had some of their stuff before. Um, I liked it. It was, um, you know, American Pale Ales are just they're a different breed and they don't seem as uh, as dank mm-hmm. as, uh, <laughs> as some of the IPAs that, that we've had and a lot of the IPAs that are out there. Um, it had just the right amount of hoppiness, yes. a tiny bit of sweetness yeah. to it. Um, it was very drinkable. I, I haven't I, said that in a while. I like that beer a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe it was just because we came from the beer that sucked. But this beer <laughs> was really good. It was the it, the kind of hoppiness that you I, I get excited about where it mm-hmm. had good flavor, good citrus, all well balanced. Two thumbs up for me, Nick. Two thumbs up. Yeah. Okay. And the third one that we had uh, that we're having right now is a cherry tricycle, which is a pastry stout mm. brewed with cherry, cinnamon, and vanilla, which is also from Penrose. That sounds one weird. Of, yeah. Yeah. And that was my thought too. Nick, this beer is, oh man, this is for me, for you, this is one of the best beers I've had in the last two to three months. Really? I am loving this. I'm getting uh, some flat Dr. Pepper notes. Oh, but, no, uh, no, no. <laughs> you're wrong, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> for me, this is like we've had a couple really good stouts that when Tom has been on the podcast. And for me, this is like just the like it's got a little punch to it, but a little bit of sweetness, but not over the top. It's not too pastry. Oh, hmm. I, I like See, it. Like with the Tom thing, Tom has ruined stouts mm. for me at this point. Yeah. So I don't know if I'm just a snob about him now. Like the the cherry seemed it, it didn't. It tasted kind of artificial, oh, no. in my opinion. <laughs> um, and this, yeah, the cinnamon was was there. Yeah. I feel like there should have been more vanilla than cinnamon. And there should have been more vanilla than either of the other two. Yeah. Um, excuse me. Uh, it's it's very dark. Um, it, it's not it's not bad. Yeah. Um, it's just yeah. Of of all the stouts that we've had, 
this is not as good for you. Not as good for hey, me. This is why I we... would drink another. Though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this for me, this would be the perfect at the end of a kind of a long day, you know, reading a book, enjoying a stout. Oh, this is this is this is where I want to be, Nick. All right. All right. <laughs> um, if you guys want to uh, check out the beers that we have on the podcast, uh, you can find us on Untapped. Look for Barstool Politics and you will find all of our reviews on there. Speed round? Yep. Let's do it. So it was almost exactly a year ago that the country was consumed by testimony of Christine Blasey Ford. Now, a year later, we find ourselves once again discussing allegations of inappropriate conduct by Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. The allegations come from two New York Times reporters who found what they say is new evidence backing up a woman who accused Kavanaugh of sexual misconduct. Deborah Ramirez. Uh, Ramirez was never uh, invited to testify before the Senate, and her allegation received less public attention than Ford's. But the Times reporters were able to find at least seven people who heard about the incident long before Ramirez went ever went public. Additionally, they found another former Yale student who claims to have seen similar a similar incident of Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh with his pants down at a different party. And if the story isn't uh, isn't enough, we could talk about how the New York Times mishandled the presentation of the story, which was an absolute disaster. Uh, Phil, the reemergence of the controversy surrounding Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation to the Supreme Court has put Democrats in a really difficult position. Some are talking about impeachment, yet others are running away, arguing that bringing up this now will only hurt Democrat prospects in 2020. What's your reaction to these new developments? Uh, I mean, this is uh, my reaction is that this is uh, I, I think this is not unexpected um, mm-hmm. that when the when the investigation, when he was uh, up for confirmation, um, it, it was pretty clear. People are are talking now as if it's shocking the way the FBI investigated uh, allegations against Kavanaugh when he was um, nominated for the court. We knew at the time that the FBI had had essentially had their hands tied. They were they were limited to a very short investigation. They were limited to only certain things that could be looked into. Uh, I mean, this is to some extent what is this is this is the the problem with the partisan uh, element of of politics in in that you know Kavanaugh is sort of rammed through for I feel like partisan reasons we talked at the time about there were lots of conservative justices who would have voted the way Kavanaugh votes without the sort of baggage um and and the republicans could have gone that direction and avoided some of this controversy by sort of pushing that down and and insisting on winning essentially you leave the i think the loser is the court right the supreme court in which you you have these sorts of allegations that are going to continue to float around and and just because the fbi didn't investigate them in the 3 days they had doesn't mean that other people aren't going to investigate them the New York Times handled this terribly, right? <laughs> uh, the, the, some of the allegations that they weren't fully reported on, meaning uh, the, the 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 victim of one of the allegations doesn't remember the incident. Um, the the tweet that they sent out about you know having a penis thrust in your face might seem like good fun or whatever. Totally tone deaf. The New York Times has screwed this up. I, it's not surprising to me that Democratic presidential – there have been a number of the presidential candidates who have essentially called for his impeachment. I can see why that in a primary is the sort of smart move to make. But the fact of the matter is, as with President Trump, the impeachment of a, of a Supreme Court justice would require a two-thirds majority in the Senate. It's not going to happen, right? It's just – it's so the idea yeah. of talking about it, I mean, I think complaining about it, pointing these things out is is fine. 
but the idea of, of moving or encouraging movement in that direction, even if that might be the right thing to do, it's just, it's simply not practical. It's not going to happen at this moment. I, I don't know. I mean, those are my initial thoughts. The, the whole thing is, is tragic, right? I mean, from, from sort of all sides, the way this has played out is, is, is kind of tragic. Yeah, it's it's sad, Nick. Uh, all all of it is sad. Is it all I shouldn't sad? say from all sides. I, I don't feel bad for Brett Kavanaugh. I should say that. <laughs> I don't feel like this is a tragedy for him. But anyway, I, I, I mean, there it's it's sad in the sense of what this has done to our perception of the, the Supreme Court and the circus that we had to sit through for you know uh, for weeks, months, uh, a, a year ago. Um, the the willingness of. <sighs> The I, I, uh, this pisses me off mm-hmm. so much. I, like I can't even form words. Um, the 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 mismanagement in terms of media coverage of this is just staggering mm-hmm. to me. Uh, and the fact that they they didn't really they put that retraction at the very end of that article. No one really knew about it until someone looked for it. The New York Times, the New York yeah. Times yeah. piece. Um, like like Phil had mentioned, where um. It was Ramirez who said she didn't remember. No, it, wasn't, no, it, was, it was the, the other, other one. one. Okay. It was the another okay. one. Yeah. yeah. So there was, long story short, there was, so the second incident, somebody else witness, claims to witness, have witnessed mm-hmm. it, but the individual who it happened to doesn't right. remember Multi- it. Yeah. Multiple people have corroborated it, but she yes. has not. Now the Ramirez, yeah. the Ramirez allegation, which was not investigated when Kavanaugh was, was up for it. There's all sorts of evidence that backs that up and all sorts of people who back that up and names that were given to the FBI that the FBI did not investigate at the time. Yeah. I, 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 I really, I don't know how to feel about yeah. this one anymore because there's been so much conflicting information from both sides at this point. Um, and, and this is, this is political capital right now. That's the only reason this is being brought up. Um, you can talk about the timing of it and, and, and whatnot. Um, and, and, you know, the duty of the media to present this, but the timing again, which a year ago we were saying the exact same thing, um, is suspect at best. Um, I, 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 I don't know how to feel about it in terms of, um, the presidential candidates and the election in general, this is political suicide. If you want to keep going down this road, that is your prerogative to do. And if you want to fall on that sword, have at it. But this is going, this is going to be a detriment to your campaign and, and to your, your party's uh, ability to get elected. If, if for many reasons, most, most importantly, it's not going to happen. You're not going to get Brett Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh off the court. Right. So, so unless you're really convinced that there are real strategic interest in, in bringing this issue up. I don't, I think the, a plague in everybody's house, right? So yes. the Democrats have bungled this and the New York times have mess, messed this up. Uh, you know, Republicans for not being more careful about selecting a nominee, bear some responsibility for this. Brett Kavanaugh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Brett Kavanaugh That's really mild to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Brett Kavanaugh bears a lot of responsibility, right? Because he was asked these questions and it wasn't because as he if, shoved his penis in women's face. Well, right. And he could, that's right. He could have said he bears some responsibility for it. A lot. Okay. Maybe some, maybe, maybe more. He could have come out and said, I don't remember these incidents, but yes, when I was in, in college, I drank too much. There are enough allegations he said out he there. He likes beer. What do you want him to do? <laughs> the man likes beer. <laughs> but had he had he come out and said, you know what? I don't I don't remember these incidents. I did sometimes drink to excess. It's a very different situation than to say this never happened. When when the Supreme Court justice says this never happened, the other side is lying. It encourages the journalist to say, well, let's bring up that other evidence, which suggests you might be lying. And if you are a Supreme Court justice, lying. 
matters, right? So all of this is just so messy and so ugly and not good for the democracy, not good for the integrity of the court. Um, you know, I think if Democrats are smart, they probably don't push this too much because I don't think it's a winning issue. But again, Nick, it makes me sad. But I, so I here's I, I wonder if I mean, so there's the principle of it, right, which where I think, mm-hmm. you know, if there's credible allegations that a Supreme Court justice did this, then that's newsworthy. They It should be reported on. It should yeah. be discussed. But uh, the other part is the just the kind of more cynical what's best in the election. And I, I don't th- that seems to be the mindset that this is a losing thing for the Democrats or that this is a dangerous topic. Um but it feels like maybe the I, I'm not I'm not as convinced by that. It, it feels like an example of Democrats we've talked about before, sort of running scared rather than like standing on their principle. The Republicans are really, really good at mobilizing people around the Supreme Court. Part of one of the big things that that Republican voters talk about as being important to them is the Supreme Court, and it feels like to assume that it is a losing issue for Democrats. I'm not sure that I'm convinced by that. I think it could be a winning issue for Democrats. If you bring up, I mean, Democrats have been reluctant to run on the court, but why, why would it be a losing issue for them if it's a winning issue for the Republicans? If, if the policy issues are divided or in fact, oftentimes more in favor of Democrats, right? Their policy views are more in line with sort of, you know, public opinion in general. Why do Democrats have to back down on the Supreme Court? Maybe it's actually a winning thing to push on this and say, you know what? We're tired of conceding the Supreme Court to the Republican Party. We're going to fight for this. We're going to play not dirty, but we're going to play, you know, we'll, if we have to be cutthroat the way the Republicans have, we'll do that. I, I guess I, I maybe that's a losing issue, but I, I, I kind of wonder if that's just an assumption that people have bought into when in fact, maybe that's a, it's actually a, something that, that can get voters in this moment fired up. It, it fires up the Republican base. The Democrats need to get their base fired up. Why can't this be the same thing for them? Well, one, they're bad at it. Um, two, uh, realistically, you're right. There are there are candidates and there are elements of the party that believe in this vehemently, that something needs to be done. My question is, it's been a year, and realistically, we haven't heard much of anything about this up until this point. And I, if you want to be principled, if you want to be just about this, if you want to get this guy off the court, that he's some monster who needs to be removed because of his actions, why are we doing this now when it is politically advantageous or disadvantageous? Regardless, it's politically expedient at the time to bring it up now. You want to talk about principles? That's fine. Principles extend beyond the election season. This is true. At the same time, though, these things play out slowly, right? I mean, so this is when you go through history, there's that first immediate wave of journalism. And then there's the second wave, which is more of like the journalists writing exactly books. Exactly a year. Well, you know, a couple of years out and then you have the historians weighing in. So, I mean, this is something we will learn more and more about Kavanaugh and his confirmation hearing as time goes by. And that's different than the the political calculus about how to respond to this. Um, you know, Phil, you're, you're so damn convincing, you know, <laughs> I just I like listening to you because it makes me think about stuff in ways that I was I was thinking this is a bad idea and, and I'm not sure it is or isn't, but uh, you make a good case. I, I think the Democrats need to make an argument that uh, so Democratic voter, I think Republican voters, the the court is high in their their consciousness when they are voting. And Democratic voters, not so much. And I think Democratic voters need to have that higher in their consciousness when they're voting. So, you know, somebody pointed out that Democrats 
think about the court when they're voting in these sort of lower races, right? So Democrats are fired up about punishing Susan Collins for what she did in the in the Kavanaugh hearing. But if Democrats had sort of had been thinking, if people had been thinking about the court and the, the importance of the court when they are voting in the presidential election, then Susan Collins' vote wouldn't have mattered in the, in the first place. And that's where, the like you were saying, Nick, the Democrats are bad at this. Republicans are really good at focusing on that and raising the stakes and pointing out how important this is. Democrats are, are less so. It, it seems like it's a it's an issue that Democrats need to focus on. I, I it, rather than talking about impeaching Kavanaugh, I, it's it's not on on principle. Maybe he should be impeached, right? There's the evidence that he uh, he perjured himself. That's a really high legal bar um, to to uh, prove. But rather than talking about impeaching him, which is impractical. Um, whether it should be done or not, use this as an opportunity to to you know bolster the argument for a Democratic candidate because the court matters, right? This is what happened when Trump was president. If he's president for four more years, he's going to have a chance to do this. The Dem- the Republicans are going to have a chance to do this again. Talk about why that is. So that's where the Democrats could be better, I think, at making this argument, and and they don't. Mm. Hmm. This is very thoughtful. Bad at it. Yeah. They're just bad. All right. We got to move on <laughs> and talk about executive privilege. So on Tuesday, Trump's former campaign advisor, Corey Lewandowski, gave some fiery, and I mean fiery, testimony before the House Judiciary Committee. Interestingly, are we okay, Nick? We're not going that one? Oh, I skipped one. I'm sorry. What the hell, bro? I got all excited. Sorry. <laughs> I skipped the topic. All right. Let's that go was back. just a preview of what's coming soon. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk Lewandowski. All right, let's go More to is- Israel. Yes. So Israelis went out on to vote on Tuesday in their second general election in just five months. The previous election failed to produce a governing coalition for the first time in Israel's history. This has uh, left Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in a difficult spot. Netanyahu, Israel's longest serving prime minister, is once again fighting for his political survival. If he fails to stay on as prime minister, he's likely to face multiple indictments on accusations of bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. So as of when we're taping right now, the election was too close to call and we're kind of waiting to see what happens. It looks like it's going to come down to who can form a coalition. But most agree that this is one of the most significant elections in the country's modern history. Israel faces a serious political divide between Netanyahu and its coalition of right wing and religious parties and more centrist secular parties. But at a deeper level, the election is a reflection on the state of democracy in Israel and the role that Netanyahu has played in that democracy. Phil, this is tremendously important and really fascinating to watch. What's your assessment of what's playing out there? Um, you know, Netanyahu's a deeply divisive person in Israel and around the the world. Uh, the, the the thing that I keep coming back to as I think about this election and watch it play out and the stakes that are high. You know, Netanyahu has sort of doubled down on the nationalism. You know, he has cited. We talk about the importance of norms on here a lot. We talk about how Trump's rhetoric might alter norms. Netanyahu arguably in response to U.S. actions, or at least partly in response to that, has made it clear that he's going to essentially annex parts of the Palestinian territory if he's reelected. This seems like a a stand-in or an example. It's like a microcosm of the world right now, right? You've got this sort of nationalistic kind of, you know, the more kind of we're focused on security, we're looking inward, um, more of a sort of turning away from international institutions and the ideas of sort of human rights and the, you know, the international community and towards we're going to do what's best for us. We're focusing on us, our security, um, versus right his opposition is is 
it, it's it in some ways feels like a referendum on you know the international the liberal international order that we talk about how much of of the you know is the world going to be more populist more nationalistic or is it going to be uh, a sort of continuation of the post-war order um, it's the same thing that's going on in Britain right it's it's the same thing that's going on in other places it feels like this is a, a common uh, yeah. a, a common sort of debate Poland, but Israel elsewhere yes. Eastern Europe yeah yeah yeah, yeah but Israel is you know for whatever reason it feels particularly representative it, it will be really interesting to see it appears that Netanyahu is going to uh he's going to lose some ground whether he ends up winning the election or not his his position is in some way weakened um it's not looking great for him but it's not at the same time to go back to what i was saying it wasn't a massive repudiation of him right it's not that that people turned out 90% to 10% voting against this kind of populist nationalistic approach yeah mm-hmm. I, I mean the uh, just kind of listening to to the news and and reading over the past week or so a lot of Israeli citizens and, and voters in general saying, yeah, like I, I, I'm not going to change my vote. Like, I, you know, it, it is what it is at this point. Um, I think it's interesting that um, prior to us recording uh, an hour or so prior to that, um, we heard that Netanyahu canceled his trip to the U.N., which uh, to me sounds like he's exceptionally worried or knows something that that we don't know at this point. Um I also heard that the the opposition party was talking about creating a, a unity government, which would also bring in a, a significant amount of uh, Netanyahu's party to create a, you know, a more cohesive coalition government uh, to to govern Israel, which, in my opinion, sounds great. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, this is it's really it's really, really interesting because the more time goes by and I remember talking about Netanyahu in kind of had, had to be middle school or early high school at this point. Um, it's, it's decades. He um, came to power in 1968. Okay. Wow. So a little before <laughs> middle school. Then. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just made that number up for listeners. That's not actually accurate. No. <laughs> um, and he, at the time I remember he's, he was this really kind of new uh, up and coming kind of charismatic guy that, had uh you know israel's best best interest in mind and now you just hear him talking about annexing parts of the west bank and you know settlement areas um and very just divisive um rhetoric which i i didn't necessarily expect um coming from him but i i personally think it's it's probably time for for a change of leadership but He's exceptionally good uh, at, at staying in power, and he's a, he's a savvy politician. Yeah. His his um, his party is exceptionally good at maintaining influence in the Israeli system, and I I'm curious to see what a a um, a different uh, majority leadership would do with the country. It, I mean, that's why it's so important because so the 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 blue and white party, which is basically pushing against him, is a much more centrist and more moderate party. And their argument has been exactly what you said, Nick, is that we've had this leadership for a long time. Netanyahu is pushed in a really extremist direction. I mean, in the campaign, just the last couple of days, Netanyahu was out campaigning for far right votes, arguing that um, you know that Arabs were voting in higher numbers, right? That, that kind of stuff, which you hadn't seen him do previously, but he's drifting so far to the right. And, you know, it, it strikes me that there are two elements here. One, for Israel's democracy, it feels like it's time to shift away for him. But because he's so good at this and because he's facing potential charges, right, if he wins this election and is prime minister, 
he can't be charged with the crimes and he's likely to get his coalition to get make him immune it's it's do or die right exactly so there's it's not just power for him it's also his you know his his ability to stay out of jail that's driving his behavior here mm-hmm. so it's uh, it's it's really important for those for those reasons and and it's not likely to be resolved in the next couple of days it's going to come down to who can make the coalition and netanyahu is very very good at this so mm-hmm. yeah we'll we'll see should we talk about Lewandowski now? Nick? Sure. Okay. Why not? All right. Yeah. So, so if if our listeners hadn't heard on Tuesday, Trump's <laughs> former campaign advisor Corey Lewandowski gave some fiery, and I mean fiery, testimony before the House Judiciary Committee. Interestingly, the White House did not object to his appearance, but did instruct him not to answer any questions about his communications with the president. This raises important questions of whether a president may assert executive privilege to shield. Uh, disclosure of his conversations with people who are not part of the White House. Staff no, or the, the answer is no. Okay. okay, good. Okay, good. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> Executive privilege has traditionally been understood as the right of the president to withhold information to protect national security or the privacy of White House deliberations. But what about deliberations with those who are not part of the White House? That issue is when uh, in June and July of 2017, President Trump apparently instructed Lewandowski to convey a message to Attorney General Jeff Sessions that Sessions should unrecuse himself so that he could limit the scope of the special counsel Mueller investigation. And remember, Lewandowski was not a government official. It's really important. Uh, this isn't the first time Trump has exerted executive privilege. He previously did so to shield documents from Congress relating to adding the citizenship question in 2020 census. And he did so over the entire Mueller report. Mueller, uh, so Phil, uh, the implications of this will extend far beyond the Trump administration. What do our listeners need to make of this? So, I mean, this is this is to me an example of of the the ability of the Trump administration to uh, reshape norms. Right. I mean, so it feels like there's two issues at play here, one of which is about Donald Trump himself. Right. And, and, And whether or not he can be protected against people testifying against him and, you know, whether this is a witch hunt and all of that. But there's a larger issue, which is about executive power and and whether or not the executive is in some way answerable to the to Congress, right? Whether or not Congress has oversight abilities. Um, and so that's, that's where, you know, beyond the what's going on with the Trump administration itself, it feels like I would like to see, I mean, that's what was, I, I didn't watch the Lewandowski uh, testimony live, but I saw clips of it and I kind of, you know, followed up afterwards. Um, and he was kind of an ass, right? And and so that, um, oh, yeah. I, <laughs> that was, that's me being polite. Um, he, uh, but I, you can understand why in, in this political climate, people who like Trump, who see this as a witch hunt would, would like what he did, right? But there's this larger point, which is is the president does have to answer to Congress on certain things, right? That Congress does have oversight abilities. And if Congress calls you to testify before before them, you don't have the option of saying, I'm not going to answer that question, right? Um, if, if you are subpoenaed to, to, to testify and you have sworn to tell the truth, the president can't use privilege 
to basically keep people from talking. Privilege is a very specific thing. Um, and it's important. I understand that it's important for a legal context, but you don't get to privilege information just because it would look bad for you. And it feels like that's a precedent that needs to be, you know, reiterated. That's the precedent that is in, or that's a, that's a, um, a view of privilege that is being called into question by the Trump administration. And, and Congress needs to, uh, you know, slap that idea down. I would like to see them. I would have liked to have seen a stronger response to some of the stuff that Lewandowski was saying. There, there's an argument that this sets up essentially, you know, in the in the move towards impeachment, that this sets up, uh, you know, another Nixon, right? Obstruction of justice and like refusal to testify before um, Congress was one of the articles of impeachment that that was brought against. It was the third article of impeachment, I believe, that was brought against Nixon. So there's a there's a chance that this is sort of you know, moving in that direction. But I, I think it's important to reiterate that the president doesn't just get to say to anybody, right, that people outside of the White House don't get to be protected by privilege just because the president doesn't want them to talk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nick, strong feelings about this one? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah kind of. Um, I, I mean, this goes back to, to something that I, I like to bring up a lot is, and again, to your point, Phil, that this in the end comes down to congressional authority and their ability to uh, exert their their given influence or, or given power <clears throat> in these situations. Um, there, as much as Lewandowski was a, a complete asshat during that, and I thought it was hilarious on many occasions, there was a significant amount of political grandstanding on the on the part of the Democrats as well. Um, and we, we talk about it, this being a potential setup to bringing impeachment charges against the president. I'm not sure what else you could really do at this point. Um, as much as there could be communication or there most likely was <clears throat> undue or untoward communication between Lewandowski and, and Trump in this particular situation, you have a myriad of other instances where uh, that seem infinitely more uh, uh, viable and useful, uh, useful in terms of, of uh, impeachment proceedings. So it is your duty to then start that process and begin an investigation in earnest. You want to keep doing this, that's fine, but this isn't going to change anything. And if there is not a, a precedent where executive privilege protects a person in this situation, and it is your authority to say that, then say that, by starting <laughs> impeachment proceedings will, will, that will eventually resolve all of these issues. This is I, like it's, it's you're you're wasting more time. I, I, to me, I don't agree that they should, but that's what they should do. Right, but that, you know, that's, that's what this. That's what this. Is. Stop talking, Bill. I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's what this is, though. I mean, this is an impeachment hearing, right? This is what's moving forward. The Democrats are reluctant to say that. They just need to say it and come out with it. And they right. have the power to actually, when Corn, yes. when Corey Lewandowski comes before Congress and and is a total ass and refuses to actually answer questions and is disrespectful, Congress has the ability to fine him to slap a lot lots of penalties on him and they should start doing that. Quit being the, the Democrats have to quit being scared of themselves and of their own shadows and actually start doing stuff. Now you can talk, Bill. It, well, I just, you know, two <laughs> things that struck me about all of this. And I, I'm, I agree. I think the Democrats won't push in a way that they should, but his testimony, and this is a unique argument that something that, that 
executive privilege extends to somebody who's not part of the administration. I am sympathetic to that, right? It gets to this issue of, is it the nature of the communication or the status of the individual that we protect? Mm -hmm. I'm more inclined to say it's the nature of the communication. What is being discussed? Now, given that, what Lewandowski was discussing with Trump is not a national security issue. It's not something that, you know, needs to be private. It is Trump telling him to obstruct justice. For those reasons, this should be, there should be no executive privilege there because of the nature of that communication. So to me, that this argument that the administration made is undermined by the fact that there's nothing there to protect. There's no national security protected or that we need to protect by that conversation. The other thing, and I know we need to move on, is that one thing the Democrats did is so they had some Democrats and Republicans asking questions, but toward the end of the hearing, hearing they brought professional counsel before, forward. This guy named Barry Berkey or whatever, whatever however you pronounce that, but uh, he's an attorney. And he was fantastic. And he did 30 minutes of questioning Lewandowski. And both parties should give up as allowing senators and members asking questions. They should bring in professional attorneys. He I was agree. fantastic. It, it really he got to the point. I mean, there are people who are good at this and our members of Congress clearly are not. Um, no, they're dumb. Yeah. And, and it, it struck me that they he this 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 uh, Democratic Council was able to get at Lewandowski in a way that no member of Congress was able to do so. They have different incentives, right? Congress members mm -hmm. of Congress are trying to win reelection as well. So I, I know you said we need to move on, but I want to go back yeah. to what you okay, said sure. about how yeah. <laughs> privilege should be about the what you know, the subject rather than the relationship. Exactly. And I, I'm, yeah. I, I don't know that I agree. Right. So the, really? there are examples of privilege that exist in, you know, outside of this in terms of executive privilege. Right. So there's like marital spousal privilege where your spouse yes. can't be forced to testify against you because when you talk to the, part of it is that when you have this conversation, there is an expectation that there mm -hmm. is privilege, right? Um, if, if Donald Trump, you know, if, if you are within the West wing with your in, if you're the president and you're talking to other people within the executive branch about stuff you're doing, I understand the idea that there is some expectation that that stays in the room, Right. But if you go out and start talking to other people, so, you know, if, 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 uh, you know, if I make an admission to Kelly, right, if I confess that I have committed some crime, I have some sort of spousal privilege there because of the nature of the relationship. If I tell some random person on the street that I have committed a crime, I can't expect that I have privilege because of the thing that I'm talking about, right? It's the relationship that gives the privilege, not the subject matter. Well, it depends but, on how fast you run in that situation. <laughs> if they can't get your license plate, I but think here, you can I, expect privacy. I agree with you, but I think the relationship really is a proxy for the nature of that communication. So let's say Donald Trump reached out to Henry Kissinger to talk about grand strategy, U.S. foreign policy, <clears throat> you know, where we should should put our nuclear weapons. You would say, well, even though Henry Kissinger is no longer part of the administration, that should be privilege, right? So I think I think the nature of the conversation might be more important to me than who that individual is. I would argue that you shouldn't be talking to people outside of government about this. So Henry Kissinger is a, a, a different type of example because yeah. he's had security clearance in the past or whatever. But if Donald Trump, you know, talked to somebody at Starbucks about the placement of nuclear missiles, you wouldn't Gene. say that that is privileged. You would say that, in fact, by striking up a conversation with someone outside of the White House, he is admitting that this is not privileged, right? That if you're willing to talk to someone who's not in fact in the inner circle and doesn't have clearance, then you are acknowledging that this is sort of a public sure. thing that you, you don't view it as privileged or protected. 
So here's my, 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 my approach to all this is that the government should be fully transparent. Everything should come out and, and some should come out sooner than later, but we're in a democracy. All this information, even the embarrassing stuff should come out over time. So that's why I don't like the idea of privileging. So the status of an individual, oh, he's, he's, you know, he's the chief of staff or something. We can't reveal that information. No, if it's not relevant to national security or the, you know, like intimate details of decision making, it's got to come out. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I would prefer more, especially over time, all of that information. We should out. also make clear that neither of us are lawyers and we could both be absolutely 100% totally wrong about everything yes. we just said. Yes. But Tom's not here, so we're okay. <laughs> right, right. I think you should, too, right. should fight about it. It's time to talk about corn pop. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of chains. All right. So the Joe Biden saga added a new chapter on Sunday when a writer for The Root resurfaced the 2017 video of Biden recounting an altercation that involved him, then a 19-year-old lifeguard working at a swimming pool in a black neighborhood in Delaware, and a gang leader named, wait for it, Corn Pop. Yes, the gang leaders, the gang leader shared a nickname with the breakfast cereal. As Biden tells the story, he blew his whistle at Corn Pop, who was playing around on the diving boards. Biden tried to emasculate him by calling him Esther Williams, a movie actress and swimming champion known for known for performing musical numbers in the water. God, this is, such a this is great. Even uh, so Corn Pop was upset with this and he and his gang threatened to jump Biden after closing time. The gang was known to fight with razors, so on the advice of the pool mechanic, Biden took a metal chain to a potential brawl. But instead of fighting, Biden says the two were able to reconcile without resorting to violence. While this all may seem a little far-fetched and Biden's stories are not always grounded in truth, the Washington Post was able to verify the existence of corn pop, if not this particular incident. All right, incident. All right, Nick, we, can, we, can we go to the audio? Oh, yes, we, we can. We need to listen to Joe Biden before we throw this Just to listening Phil. Listening to this rambling mess. Yeah. Shall we? Corn Pop was a bad dude. And he ran a bunch of bad boys. And I did. And back in those days, to show how things have changed, one of the things you had to use, if you used pomade in your hair, you had to wear a bathing cap. And so he was up on the board, wouldn't listen to me. I said, hey, Esther, you, off the board, or I'll come up and drag you off. Well, he came off, and he said, I'll meet you outside. He's waiting for three guys in straight razors. Not a joke. There's a guy named Bill Wright, Mouse, the only white guy, and he did all the pools. He was the mechanic. There used to be a chain that went across the deep end, and he cut off a six-foot length of chain. So I walked out with the chain. Here's the thing, people. Before you two get to say anything, that clip goes on for probably another five minutes or so. Yes. He sounds like an old senile man rocking back and forth on his porch, talking to no one after his grandkids left. He sounds like Grandpa that's Simpson. Supposed, yes. Yeah. That's yes. supposed to be your president. I just want to make oh. that abundantly clear. All right, Phil. So there's a lot of anxiety in the Democratic Party about Biden's candidacy. Does this story about Biden and Corn Pop almost having a chain and razor fight make you feel better or worse about his prospects in the 2020 election? Uh, <laughs> so, I, I mean, the, the, the thing about this story is that the, the, the feeling that I come away from with it is that uh, he's old, right? I mean, you, yeah. you, the story is told in a way that, like you said, it, it sounds like Grandpa Simpson. Um and, and so there are issues of whether he's out of touch or or whatever. But you know he's he's old. He's telling a story. I, I it's not necessarily that he's 
you know, crazy or senile or whatever. He's just telling a story from the 1840s when he was a kid <laughs> or whatever. Um, so I, I, you know, I, this is not new, right? Biden has, is gaff prone. He does these sorts of things. He says stuff that, that, and again, this is what, two years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. This is an example, you know, you were talking about Nick about the, the re-raising of the Kavanaugh uh, stuff and the, I mean, this is being brought up because he's running for president. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily, you know, in the grand scheme of things, w- am I anxious about him and his age? Yeah, uh, I, I'm, I worry about his ability to withstand a long um, election. That's not necessarily his age. It's more the kind of personality and how he's handled stuff up, up to this point. Um, but again, in the grand scheme of things, if it comes down to uh, Joe Biden, who likes to ramble on about corn pop or uh, <laughs> Donald Trump and, you know, challenging norms of, of executive uh, power and, and you know, the, the ability of Congress to oversee them or, I, yeah, I mean, I, if it comes down to it, I'm more comfortable with the, an old guy uh, that, who tells funny stories than I am with someone who uh, doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of respect for the rule of law. Yeah. Um, Nick? Just flew in the yeah, window. we had a bird. Yeah, this <laughs> <laughs> is very distracting. We had a bird fly into the window. Um, I, I, I'm I'm sympathetic to that viewpoint, but we've also talked about at length on this podcast about uh, a a president who isn't necessarily able to function as effectively as he should and delegates power too much power to unelected officials around him. Um, and I'm not super comfortable with that anymore. I like, I I know you guys aren't comfortable with it in this administration, so you shouldn't be comfortable with it in any administration. Um, I I don't think that he's the right person to be president. And I think there, I'm not saying that there are no Democrats that shouldn't be. I think there are exceptionally qualified democratic candidates that should be, um, making him the anointed nominee is not the way to go. I, I, I think that, as much as he is gaff prone and, you know, he's kind of known for that, there is a point where you're just not in touch with with everything that's going on right now. Yeah. And I think a lot of other candidates have made a point that they understand that they may have viewpoints that are a little extreme, uh, different, but there are other candidates who are significantly more moderate, who understand the, the pulse of the nation right now, but who also aren't just doing it because they're the name that you're supposed to be with at this point. And again, I've emphasized this before. I figured you guys would have learned that a couple years to almost three years ago at this point, but I apparently not. So we'll just keep going. The episode reminds me or it reminds everyone of Biden's age. Right. And I think that's important. And we don't want to be ageist, but at the same time, it's, it's hard to ignore with Biden. You know, that being said, it also is endearing. You know, Biden is obviously a nice guy and the story is sort of it makes you want to like him the way that you would like your his your grandfather, but you I don't it's necessarily mean grandpa. Right. It doesn't mean that he should be president of the United States. Jimmy Carter came out either today or yesterday and said, I wouldn't have wanted to have been president in my late seventies, early eighties. And I think there's real good reason for not having somebody at that age. So I, I like Phil, I have real concerns about this. If it, I hope we could do better than Trump and Biden. If it came down to those two, I think you go Biden, right? I mean, there's enough, you know, there's enough bizarre, dangerous red flares with Donald Trump where you say we we can't do that again. But I I sure would hope 
that the Democratic Party could find somebody who was a little more in tune with, you know, the reality of the right. world that is <laughs> yeah. before swim caps, you know, right. or whatever. Was it right. swim caps or was, yeah. Yeah. Oh, pomade? I mean, Biden's pomade, old, yeah. he's, he's, he's three years older than Donald Trump, right? So, I mean, it, it's it, it's a weird – it's an interesting thing in which we focus on the age of, of Joe Biden. Um, but so, so yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where I totally agree with you, Bill. I, I, in it, for me, it's a concern. Some of it is, is age, but some of, most of it's like a, like you were saying, Nick, it's about how in touch you are and how, you know, there's, I, I just feel like the, the nature of the democratic party, there has been a generational shift and I don't feel that Joe Biden is necessarily reflective or representative of the, of the democratic party as it stands today. Um, but Again, if he's the nominee and you have a 76-year-old Joe Biden versus a 73-year-old Donald Trump, the idea that you wouldn't vote for Biden because of his age seems to be – it seems nonsensical. Well, a couple of – I don't mean to move on, but you know, Elizabeth Warren is also in her sev- early – she's, she's 70. I think 69. She's close to 70. Six, okay. But she seems light years younger yeah. than Biden and Bernie – and the other thing, so I was talking to uh, Suzanne, Suzanne Chad, we've had her on the podcast many times today, and I was re- relaying the story of Corn Pop, and she said, you know, the movie Anchorman, yeah. when they all come out with their like, yeah, weapons, <laughs> Steve Carell is holding a grenade, yeah. you know, she's like, that's what this reminds me of. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And she it's, is, Elizabeth I, Warren is 70, I did, I just uh, confirmed. Okay. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a, a larger institutional problem, in my opinion, and I, I think we talked about it a, a couple episodes ago that like the thought of an 18 year old coming into this election and constantly, I, I mean, all of their, their choices uh, or viable choices are, are men and women over 70 years old. And it's, it, it continues to get older. Yeah. I like there's, there's no possible and talk to anybody, especially an 18 year old or someone who, who's, you know, on the younger end of the spectrum you're going to tell me that a 70 year old or anybody older than that is in touch with what's going on especially with a generation this, that's 50 years younger than them. Especially in this age when technology matters so much. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. No, I, Things I agree. change at light speed with the inner tubes and whatnot. The, the one sorry, aspect of this that, that we're missing out on is that we're three white guys, right? And Biden has tremendous support amongst the African-American community. And so that, yes. it's one of those things where, you know, we have this perspective, but people haven't been able to shake that. The African-American community loves Joe Biden. And until another sure. candidate can come along, and that's because of he has a long history in terms of civil rights and, and his involvement in that, that some of the other candidates lack. And so that's, you know, that's true. You know, we are, we are talking about one aspect of the democratic party, but we're, you know, that's, we are missing out on a whole nother chunk of the democratic party because, because of the fact that we're three white guys. Oh yeah. yeah. Like you can't ignore the history of that, but at the same time, as, as time goes on, you're going to lose more and more elements of those constituencies that are, are part of those elements that, you know, surrounded themselves around a candidate and, you know, demographics change, um, you know, uh, 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 um, methods of employment change, uh, just society in general changes. And, and those coalitions don't necessarily work as effectively as they used to. And that's going to start being a severe detriment as time goes on for both parties. Yeah. So, and they don't seem to be willing to look at younger, younger, um, and it's not even younger, just, just people who, who are more in touch with, 
with issues now. Think about a CEO of a company. There's no way that a CEO of Apple or whatever it is would, would bring in somebody in their 70s, right? And that we should have the same standard for our presidency. Oh, yes. Yeah. All right. <laughs> fine, time to move on to our final topic. So, gentlemen, over the last few weeks, we've closed the podcast with a fun and thought-provoking game. Nick hasn't told me to stop. So this week, we're going to play one more called <laughs> Trump Said What? For this game, I will read you three <laughs> statements that were allegedly made by Trump, and you need to tell me which are real and which are fiction. And I should note that I have not told, or Phil and Nick have not seen these statements. So this is all, it's a very official and scientific. I don't like this. <laughs> I need to clarify the rules. So when you say that yes. these are alleged <laughs> statements by Trump, does that mean that you've made some of them up and you're alleging that Trump said them? Or Someone in the media has alleged Trump has said these things, and some of them have been proven Ooh, true, and some have been proven wrong. Valid point. Good question. Uh, the former. So it's you. I'm either reading a true statement that Trump actually said, or a crazy statement that I've made up. All right. So you just did some Mad Libs. And, yes. Okay. Yes. And so you have to decide whether I made this up, okay. or whether Trump truly said this. Cool. Now I'm all right. right. What so, do I win if I get him right? <laughs> Nothing. No, okay. <laughs> okay. So number one, true or false? This week, when complaining about the depleted state of the military when he became president, Trump said that Secretary, Secretary of Defense James Mattis came to him and asked him to delay a potential mission because, quote, and I quote, sir, we're very low on ammunition. True or false? Phil, true or false? That is true. That's absolutely true. <laughs> yeah, I got to go with true on true, that one. Correct. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> He did say that. Uh, and it was a longer quote where he used the word sir a lot. But yes, he alleged that uh, Jim, James Mattis came to him early in the administration and said, we can't engage in whatever this hypothetical administration uh, adventure is because we are low. We on don't ammunition. have enough bullets. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Number two, true or false? While explaining his decision to scrap a rule that would have phased out less energy efficient light bulbs and replaced them with LED and other high efficient light bulbs, Trump noted that part of his frustration with these new fancy light bulbs is that they made him look orange. True or false? Nick? True. <laughs> that is Phil? also true. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. All right. You're right. This is just a trick question. All right. Okay. Fair. All right. So you've, you guys are very good at this. All right. So number three, this is a tricky one. True or false? During a reception at a hotel in France during the recent G7 conference, President Trump saw Egyptian President el-Sisi and called out to him down the hall, where's my favorite dictator? <laughs> True or false? Why, why didn't he got to ruin it at the last second? <laughs> That's got to be false. <laughs> All right, so Phil goes false. I will probably say false on that one. All right, that is also true. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. Yes, he no, absolutely did it. No, you're no, foolish. No, he did it. He did. Absolutely, he did that. Uh, there were a number of accounts that at, at the G7, he saw, no. he saw the Egyptian president. So I'm walking down the hall. And I want confirmation. Out. I want someone who was there. I want video. You're full of shit. And yelled out to him, where's my favorite dictator? No. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh. but you're worried about Joe Biden and his corn pop story. <laughs> That's right. Oh no! Oh. Why did Why did you do that? <laughs> now I'm I'm gonna be looking for this the entire fucking night. You know that, right? <laughs> Son of a oh. bitch! Do you watch Do you watch so, uh, we, Do you watch Veep? Do you ever watch Veep? <laughs> it's like yes. straight up a Veep episode. Yes. Oh no! 
No, uh, he, no. He, what did he do? He yelled, "Where's my favorite no. dictator?" No, <laughs> did Cece do? Uh, well, apparently, everybody in the room just instantly went quiet. <laughs> yes, and this was there were should. other members of the G seven there. Yeah, uh, and yeah, but Trump likes you know Cece from Egypt, who you know is is a dictator. Apparently, his favorite dictator. Well, I was about to say, so. there's a lot of other dictators who are probably deeply upset by that. <laughs> That's that. true. <laughs> That's right. It's a foreign policy oh, scandal. Oh, oh this was a fun game. Oh my god! And I, I like, I, I have to, I have to know that actually. <laughs> I will tweet this out to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> oh oh my god! I like, I, I, I yeah. can't even wrap my mind around that. That's a good one. Isn't That's it? a real good one. I, kinda, I like that game. I kind of made up the first two just to set you up for the third. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we're going to get that spinning wheel of games going, too, at some point. (laughs) You guys are going to help us with that, listeners. Yeah. Um, Anyways, uh, if you guys like the the podcast, um, questions, comments, uh, that's really loud. Uh, Beer suggestions, anything like that. Follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L. Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, Beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Uh, Look for uh, just Barstool Politics. Uh, You'll find all of our reviews. Uh, and then the podcast, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. So, again, review us, share us, like us through that stuff. Um, we always appreciate the support. Um, anything else after that last minute mindfuck? Thank was you. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> I've been looking forward to that for a couple days. <laughs> All right. Well, we will see you guys next week. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.